Well, my, uh, my daughter Caitlin absolutely loves it when I bring her up during the sermon, so I'm not going to say this morning that, that uh, she actually, all the, all the seventh graders currently in middle school are, 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 they're in that time where they're required to learn about the Constitution of the United States, and, and as they, I'm not sure exactly how long that takes during the year, but but as they go through that, it all culminates with, uh, with an infamous constitution test. And, and part of what each uh, student has to learn is the first 10 amendments of the constitution called the Bill of Rights. That's often, uh, that's what we, what we call them. And these are, these, are the, these are 10 amendments which spell out rights afforded to each citizen of this country. Now, I, I don't want to spend time this morning uh, dissecting and discussing the specific rights in those amendments. We'll just we'll leave those to the seventh graders that are that are going uh, taking their civics class right now. But what I do want to point out is that, that we as Americans have had ingrained deep within us the concept that we are a people who have rights, aren't we? Uh, in fact, our very country was born out of the context in which people living in this land felt that they were being oppressed and not given the rights that they deserved uh, by England. That's why the document which declared our independence from England states that we believe all humans are given certain unalienable rights by their creator. You can look nearly a century later, after that, our, our country would fight a civil war which focused upon the rights of black people in the United States. I, you, you know, suffice it to say, rights are important to us as Americans. There's no question about that. Few, few things will spark a fight faster than someone feeling their rights are being oppressed or ignored. But as we continue this morning in, in this uh, pursuit of renewing our minds according to the truth of, uh, the truth of God, we ought to ask ourselves, what does the Bible have to say about my rights? Does the Bible say anything about rights? Uh, were, were, our far, were our founding fathers correct to attribute unalienable rights to the will of our creator God? Right? So, so we're going to look at that this morning, and, and I think the first thing that we have to do um, in, in any discussion about rights is define what we're talking about. Right? What, what, what do we mean when we say that? I think maybe a helpful place to start is to think about what makes something right. When we talk about something being right, what do we even mean? And a good description of right, I think, is, is something that is just, something that is fair, something that is correct. And so when we talk about our rights as humans or as Americans or, or whatever the case might be, we, we might say that we are referring to ourselves being treated in a way that is just, fair, correct. So when we talk about rights, I think we, it needs to be grounded in that. And I think we also need to, to recognize the role that relationship plays in terms of rights. If it were not for relationship, we would have no rights. We wouldn't have a need for rights if it weren't for relationship. And here's what we can do. Picture yourself, um, not just on a desert island, right? That's how this thing normally goes. But, but picture yourself on earth as the only person on the face of the earth, okay? Can you imagine any situation in that setting 
where you would be concerned about your rights, if you were the only person on the face of the earth, can you come up with anything? I mean, I, I, I tried. I, I couldn't come up with any situation in that context where I would be concerned about my rights. So, so if I'm going to examine any rights that I do or don't have, I think it, it always has to be done in the context of examining, examining relationships with other beings. And as humans, we really primarily have relationships with two kinds of beings, God and other humans, right? I mean, the, the, our, our relationships fall in one of those two categories, God, other humans. So I think the questions that we can ask are, in light of those relationships, do I have rights before God? When I think about my relationship with him, do I have rights before God? When I think about other people, do I have rights as a fellow citizen of this earth? So that's what we're going to kind of look at this morning to get us started. Does the Bible say anything about those two specific questions? So let's talk about rights in our relationship with God. I think the story of Job is, is a fascinating case study in this area. It gives us powerful insight into this first question. Um, in the very first verse of the book of Job, Job is, is stated to be a blameless upright, God-fearing man. That's how we are introduced to Job in that book. And then over the, over the first two chapters, Satan seeks to turn Job away from God by asking permission to take away Job's wealth, his children, and his health. And those things eventually are all taken away from Job, and it leads Job's wife to urge him to curse God. Job, you should curse God. In essence, she told Job to respond as if Job, Job deserved better from God, as if Job had the right to be treated better by God. That, that's, in essence, the response that she encouraged him to give. Well, the book goes on, and Job's three friends are there, and they famously seek to convince Job that He's done something to deserve this punishment from God. In essence, they seek to convince Job that, that he has lost the right to be treated well by God because he has sinned in, in some way. If he wants to restore his right to blessing, then he needs to repent of his sin and come back to God. That's what the three friends say. Now, through it all, Job maintains that he has not sinned, that he's not done something to deserve what has happened to him. And, and even though he can't explain the reasons for what happened, he, he does seem to give a hint at believing that he has the right to be treated well by God. Because th this is what Job says in chapter 31, verse 2. Job says, What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? In other words, God, are you, you're giving me what I don't deserve, right? God, this is what you should be doing to the unrighteous, to the workers of iniquity. God, you, you shouldn't, be, shouldn't be giving this. You, you, God, you're not treating me as you rightly should. I mean, that, that, that's the thought behind Job's statement there. Well, God responds in chapter 38 through 41. God responds, and, and what he 
tells Job is essentially, Job, you don't have the right to demand blessings from me. God asks a barrage of rhetorical questions that that display his own power and wisdom and majesty to be so far above Job's. God is the creator of all things. God is Job's creator. And as a result, Job has no right to demand anything from the almighty, omniscient, perfect, pure God. And, and, and we can't forget, I mean, this is Job, who at the beginning of the book is said to be blameless and upright and God-fearing. Now, we know Job was not perfect. We know that the, he had a fully functioning sin nature like the rest of us. But Job sure seemed to be following God and worshiping God in great ways. So if even Job did not have the right to stand before God and demand things, what hope is there for me? Right? I'm no Job. Shocking, right? None of us. What, what, what rights do we have? I mean, Paul describes the reality for every one of us in this way. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul writes this. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I mean, that, that's who we are, Paul reminds us, and prior to Christ, that's who we are. So, so to answer that first question, I don't have any rights as I stand before God. God, God is not obligated to do anything for me because of who I am. He, he's just not. God will always act according to his character, but that doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't have rights as I stand before him. And it's in, I think it's important for us to remember this because in, in our sin nature, we can sometimes approach God as if he does owe us something or, or as if he is in the wrong because of something we, we, we think he did or didn't do. And we can try to place ourselves in a position of authority over God, in a way correcting God for how he should have acted. But, but to do so is to be mistaken. It's to be prideful, really. God is God and I'm not. I'm not him. And as such, I, I, I cannot approach God as someone who has rights before him. Now, as I say that, before we move on, I do want to say this, because Paul talks about approaching God's throne of grace with confidence, right? He writes those words. All throughout the Bible, you see people coming to God in prayer, at times very boldly. That, that confidence and boldness, it doesn't come from our rights before God. It's a response to promises which God makes. The Bible's filled with promises that God has graciously and mercifully made to us. And, and because of God's character and his trustworthiness, we, we can bring those promises to him in prayer and, and expect a response. But again, it's not because of our rights before God. It's, it's because of God's own character and his goodness 
that we can approach him in that way, but, but we shouldn't confuse it with rights that we think we have before him. So do I have any rights as I stand before God? I really don't. But what about with fellow citizens of the earth? Because those are the other relationships that, uh, that we have. Do I have any rights as it pertains to my relationships with other people? And the Bible is consistently clear in this area. Yes, we do. We do have rights. We, we, we talked last week about the value of personhood, right? Uh, we, we talked about how that value is seen in part when God states in Genesis chapter 9, um, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. That, that statement speaks to the right of a person to have life, right? So there's a right there. Um, Further, the Ten Commandments, especially the ones that speak to interpersonal relationships, they, they, they speak of rights. So, for example, the, the command not to steal, that affirms that I have the right to buy something, place it in my house, and expect it not to be taken away from me by someone else. Right? That, that commandment is upholding a right that, that I have as a human. Or, 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 for example, another law from the Old Testament. If, if a man's uh, field was grazed over by an animal that got loose and, and, and went in it, then the man had a right to receive restitution from the owner of that animal. Right? There, there, there's a right there that that command in the Old Testament is upholding. So, and and, and there's, there's plenty of examples in the Bible where we, we see that God proclaimed and upheld the rights of people as they lived among one another. So to read the Bible properly is to see that we do indeed have rights as fellow citizens of the earth. We do. Now we think about governments, right? Governments of the earth ideally will affirm those rights. That's kind of what the the governments are called to do. In, In many ways, if you think about it, in our own government, the legislative work done in Congress is a continual specifying of our rights as Americans. It's what it's supposed to be. And ideally, those rights are determined by considering what is just and fair and correct according to the truth of God as seen in the Bible. Ideally, that's, that, that would be the foundation. That'd be the source. But, but we know that isn't always how governments function, right? That's not always the case by any means. Governments can lose sight of the true standard of righteousness, of, of rightness, and as a result, they can affirm rights that don't exist. They can deny rights that do exist. I, I don't want to enter that debate this morning <laughs> about the, the specific details. I simply want to make the point right now that as humans, we do have rights in our mutual existence together. And it's not just because the government says that we do that Scripture says that we do. I think those founding fathers were right to say that we have certain unalienable rights given to us by our Creator. So there's a, there's a standard of justness and fairness and, and correctness that, that uh, is reflective of the character of God that is meant to be upheld uh, among humans. Okay? The, Bible, the Bible leads us in that direction. So, so we do have rights before one another. But what I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about is, uh, well, renewing our minds regarding how our rights ought to be utilized. If we have these rights, what does that mean? How are we to live those out? As followers of Jesus, 
what ought to be our attitudes toward these rights that I have among my, my fellow human beings? Or, or said another way, how ought I utilize my rights in a God-honoring way? That's what I want to really dive into this morning. The perfect example of this, as we might expect, is Jesus himself. And we look at his life. I mean, if there was ever someone on earth who deserved to be treated a certain way, I think it was the one whom angels declared at his birth to be the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I think he deserved to be treated according to some rights, right? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, has some rights. He has the full authority to demand that he be treated according to the rights that he possesses. But, turn with me to John chapter 13. Because what, we, what we're going to see is, when we look at the example of Jesus' life, we see that he wasn't one to demand that his rights be given to him. Instead, he laid down his rights in order to more powerfully and clearly proclaim the message of his kingdom. He did it over and over and over again. So John chapter 13 is one example of this. This scene takes place as Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples just before his arrest. So starting in verse 1, John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, and I want to stop right there for just a minute before we get into what Jesus does. It's noteworthy that John sets the scene by stating Jesus' identity. In a way, John is reminding us of who Jesus is, and I think by extension, the rights that he possesses because of who he is. And Jesus is the Son of God to whom the Father has given all things. Jesus has come to earth from the Father. He, he was soon to return to the Father. I mean, these are credentials which no one else in all history has been or ever will be able to claim. And that, that's who Jesus is. The God who created the entire vastness of the cosmos was sitting in that upper room around the supper table. I mean, unparalleled power, unparalleled authority were contained in the person of Jesus. That, that's who's present that evening in that room. So we have to keep that in mind as the scene unfolds, if we're going to grasp the immensity of what was about to take place. So look with me again. I'll, I'll start back in verse 3, and then let's see what Jesus does. So verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
So if we're going to talk about rights in this passage, there is one person who had the right to have his feet washed by someone else. But that person was presumably the only one whose feet were not washed in that room that evening. I mean, Jesus is the rabbi. Jesus is the son of God. He had been given all things into his hands by his father in heaven. By all accounts, Jesus should have been the one sitting down while anyone else there took the role of washing his feet. If we're talking about rights, that's what should have happened, isn't it? That's not what happened. That's not what Jesus did. He humbled himself and laid down his own rights. He took his disciples' dirty feet and one by one purposefully washed them. If you've ever had your feet washed by someone else, you can begin to grasp the power and significance of the scene. That power, that significance comes from the fact that the one who had every right to be served put down his rights in order to serve. That's what makes it so powerful. I mean, John says that this act was part of Jesus showing his love to his disciples. If Jesus had no rights, that it wouldn't have been much of an act of love. But because he had incredible rights, him laying down those rights communicated love in such a deep and meaningful way. So what we see is that Jesus utilized his rights in such a way that, that he expressed his awesome love to his disciples. That's how Jesus used his rights. And, and this is just one example from Jesus' life. Paul highlights two more events in, in similar fashion. Paul talks about Jesus' incarnation, his, his becoming human, and his crucifixion. So if you'd like, look with me at Philippians chapter 2. In, in verses 3 and 4, Paul urges the Christians at Philippi to lay down their rights in service of one another. This is what Paul says, Philippians chapter 2, starting verse 3. He writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul doesn't use the word rights, but, but he's describing that concept. He wants the believers to not be consumed by their concerns about themselves and their own places of honor. Instead, they ought to look to other people's interests and count others as higher than themselves. And why does Paul say that? Where does he get it? What's his reasoning for leading the believers to do this? It's the example of Jesus. Look in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus laid down his rights when he emptied himself and became human. I mean, the, the master of all creation became a servant within his creation. The one who reigned with the Father at his right hand stepped down to earth as a human. Isn't that incredible? But that wasn't as empty as Jesus could have made himself. Remember, we, even as a lowly human being, he still had rights. We talked about that. We have rights as, as fellow citizens of this earth. So from that point, Jesus humbled himself even further to the point of dying on the cross. He, he took sins upon himself which he did not commit. And Jesus, who deserved everything, laid down everything. And he did it as an act of love. I mean, we ought to allow that to sink very deeply within our hearts and within our minds. The, the incredible sacrifice of Jesus, him laying down his rights for us. My, my hope and my prayer is that as, as we think about Jesus' actions, that it, that it does two main things within us. I, I pray that it reveals the incredible love that God has for us. Jesus lays down his rights on our behalf. I mean, what kind of love does that talk about? Does that show? I mean, there's, there's nothing greater that God could have done to show us that he loves us. I mean, his, his sacrifice on the cross should wreck us in a good way. It really should when we think about it. So my prayer is that, and, and my, my prayer is that Jesus' actions become the example that we strive to follow as we walk in his shoes and proclaim his love to the world around us. And just like Jesus laid down his rights to proclaim his love, so we too can and should lay down our rights in order to proclaim God's love. May we not be consumed by our own interests, as Paul talks about, but consider the interests of others to the point that we're willing to do that, willing to lay down our rights. Now, now, when Paul wrote these words to the church at Philippi, he wasn't asking them to do something which he himself was unwilling to do. I mean, Paul is pointing to the example of Jesus, but, but a few years prior to Paul writing these words, in a different letter to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote about how he specifically had been laying down his own rights. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you'd like to turn there with me. As Paul writes in, in that letter to the church in Corinth, there were opponents of Paul who were questioning his motives as an apostle. Now, it was common at that time for, for traveling speakers, and, and Paul was a traveling evangelist, so it was common then for traveling speakers to make a living from their craft. They'd arrive at a town or a city, they would, they would make their speech, do their thing, and then and people would, would give them money. They would support them uh, through that. And so as a result, some people accused Paul of traveling to share the gospel just solely for the financial benefit that he might receive from that. That's what they were accusing Paul of. And, and listen, to, listen to Paul's response in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 3. He writes, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? 
Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I, that was Paul's traveling companion, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? So basically, as Paul starts here, what he's saying is that even if he were to receive some form of earthly benefit from his ministry, he's not sinning by doing that. He would be acting in line with other apostles that he talks about who, who are acting in line with God's command in the law of Moses. In other words, Paul's saying, I have every right to be supported by those to whom I am ministering. But the question is, how does Paul proceed? He, he makes the case that he has that right, but what does he do with that right? Well, if we continue on, halfway through verse 12, this is what he says. Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve in the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. <clears throat> for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting." So Paul had this right as an apostle, a God-given right as he showed, but he laid it down. He laid that right down. Now, we know that as he traveled from town to town, he did so as a, as a tent maker. He sought to, sought to support himself through those skills as a tent maker. He refrained from asking for supplies from those to whom he was ministering. But the question is why? I mean. Paul, if you have this right, if God clearly states that you have this right, then, then why lay it down? And you could make the argument that Paul, instead of spending some time making a tent, you could have been preaching the gospel another time, you know? Didn't the ministry suffer because of what you were doing? I mean, Paul, did you do this because, because you wanted to be able to hold it over the believers? You know, was it so that he could cash in a huge, you owe me one later on? I mean, Paul, why, why are you doing this? Well, Look at verse 19. He states his reason. He says, For though I'm free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 
I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul laid down his rights for the sake of the loving gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's why he did what he did. He viewed his situation as an opportunity to powerfully and clearly proclaim the message of the kingdom of God through showing love, the love that he showed by laying down his rights. In that situation, it was not taking anything material from someone. So let's come back to who we are as Americans, right? As Americans, we are trained to view our rights as our rights, aren't we? I mean, we are taught to hold them sacred, to fight, to keep them. We, we hold as heroes those who've done so in the past. But Jesus calls his people to walk a different path, the same path that he walked. As Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself for our sake, we too ought to empty ourselves and humble ourselves for the sake of others. That's what we're called to do as his followers, even as American followers of Jesus. Now, our God is a just God. And so when we see other people's rights being trampled, especially those who are oppressed and vulnerable, then we ought to pursue justice for them. Right? We ought to take up the cause of the widow, the orphan, the, the foreigner, the outcast. And, and in so doing, be the hands and feet of Jesus. We shouldn't say, well, they, they don't need to have any rights. You know, we're supposed to lay down our rights. They'll be fine. No, we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We're supposed to, we're supposed to, to pursue justice. But when it comes to our own rights, when it comes to my rights, we ought to similarly be the hands and feet of Jesus by holding those rights very loosely and even being willing to lay them down that we might show the love of God to the world. Now there's something inside of me and and maybe there's something inside of you that cringes at that statement, isn't there? If we're being honest with ourselves, I mean, there's something inside of me that wants to say, yeah, 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 but we're not supposed to be pushovers, right? Yeah, we're not supposed to let evil win the day, right? We're, we're, we're not supposed to give up, right? I mean, there's something inside of me that, that pushes back with those statements. When it came to Jesus laying down his rights as he hung on the cross, he wasn't being a pushover. Evil was not winning the day. He wasn't giving up as he did that. It was as he sacrificed himself that the kingdom of God victoriously broke into the world. As you and as I lay down our rights for the sake of others, the kingdom of God will victoriously expand in this world. God works through us in that way. It's just what he's chosen to do. It's who he is. That, That expansion doesn't come through fighting. It's never come through fighting. It comes through sacrificing. So, so when it comes to our rights as Americans, we can easily get caught up in our society's ways of thinking about those things. We can be conformed to the world more than we might realize in that area. 
as followers of Jesus, we need to be transformed in this area by the renewal of our minds according to the word of God. Our rights are good things. People have paid dearly to, to give us these rights, right? To uphold these rights that we have. I'm not trying to disparage that in any way. Our rights are good things, but, but we shouldn't hold them so tightly that they become the ultimate thing. That we would say, no, they're, they're so important, I have to hold on to them. There's, there's, I, would, I would never give those up. Are you, or am I, are we following in the example of Jesus, looking to the interests of others, and laying down your rights, my rights, for the sake of the gospel? That by all means we might save some, to use Paul's words. There's powerful opportunity there, let me put it that way. When we lay down rights that, that are truly our right, when we lay those down for the sake of others, it communicates love in such a unique, powerful way. And that's the message of the gospel when you think about it. That's what Jesus did on the cross. So there's a good challenge for us there as, as Americans who've been given a lot of rights. We have a great opportunity to utilize those to proclaim the gospel in some powerful ways. Let's stand, come before God together and and seek his leading in this area. He'd be guiding and directing us to know how we, can, how we can powerfully proclaim his love to the world. Let's come to God together. Father, we're, we, we stand here before you this morning and everything that we have is, is uh, given to us by you. And you've given us rights as, as humans as we live among one another. You have. Those rights are in line with who you are, your, your, your character, your, your justness, your fairness. And we recognize that, and, and, and so we're so thankful for that. But we also see that you came and, and showed us a different way to think about those rights. And so would you, would you renew our minds in this area? God, would you help us to know what it looks like to live as a follower of you, especially as an American follower of you? God, would you show us opportunities where we can lay down our own rights and, and proclaim your love in such a, such a powerful way? And God, do that work in our hearts that's going to be required to, to even think about doing something like that. God, we know that... that, that Apart from you and our selfish nature, we don't respond that way. So would you do your work within us to lead us into the, those kinds of responses? And God, I pray that as we do that, as we, as we sacrifice ourselves and lay down our rights, that, that you would use that to powerfully work in other, other people's lives. They would not just hear about your love, but, but see it displayed and be drawn toward it. God, help us to trust you. It can be scary, can, can make us unnerved when we think about what would happen if we lay down our rights, but help us to trust you as we do that, that you will provide all that we need, that we are in your hands. God, we give you praise this morning. We thank you that you laid down yourself for us. We are who we are because of you. Help us not to forget that. 
Help us now as we worship you in response to that. We pray this in your name. Amen.